0: Greetings and welcome back to the Kogo Pod. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for tuning in, and thanks to those who have gotten in touch with kind words about this podcast. While for the most part I'm doing this for my students, it's really heartening to know that there's many, many more people listening to this than I had expected. Frankly, it makes me a little bit nervous, but I'm doing okay with it, and I'm honored to be able to help out a little. And there were a few people who threw a few bucks into the kitty at the buymeacoffee.com site, so thanks to them too. My effort today is to offer a structural analysis of the British government. Although I should say that my effort is probably more summative than it is analytical, but I don't want to kid myself entirely. My tendency is to angle towards the problematics and the analysis but I'm definitely not going to do that today at the expense of summary. So how does one even begin to summarize this enduring British government, a government that has been constructed more through evolution than through revolution, a government which has withstood a great many tests, and of course has many more tests to withstand Well, it's not easy to know where to begin, because the answer to the question itself, what is the British government, is not so cut and dry. Is the government the Queen's enduring nonpartisan government? Or is the government the Prime Minister's government? Or does the government belong not just to the Prime Minister, but to the Cabinet? There's a good argument that the government itself is the civil service that endures from one administration to the next. There's an equally and perhaps more compelling argument that it's a parliamentary government, not the prime minister's government, not the civil servant's government, not the queen's government, but parliament's government. You know, maybe that question itself, to what precisely are British people referring when they talk about the government? So let's make sure we're speaking the same language, right? We talk about Westminster. This is the neighborhood of government. We have Whitehall. That's where the executive agencies are, you know, Whitehall Street. We have Downing Street, and on Downing Street, we have a number of important political offices, first and foremost of which is number 10 Downing Street, where the prime minister resides. And then we have Parliament, and when we're talking about Parliament, We're talking about both the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Now, theoretically, all power resides in the crown. Of course, what is the British crown but symbolism and tradition and mythology? And expensive. (laughs) The, The British crown costs the British government about 80 million pounds a year. It's about 100 million U.S. dollars. And there's a not insubstantial portion of the population who finds this to be problematic, particularly people who live in London. Now, ultimately, when you do the math, the British Crown costs the British taxpayer about £1.25 per year. So that's next to nothing. And the tourism revenue that the Crown inspires pays for all of that, probably plus some. And perhaps because it doesn't cost the British people much, About 75% of British people support keeping the crown. This discussion of turning Britain into a republic is really kind of a fringe topic. And I'll be honest with you, when I first started teaching this class 15, 16 years ago, and I started thinking about British politics a little more seriously, I was really repelled by the notion of a hereditary monarchy playing such an outsized role in British politics and culture. But despite not being a crown watcher, I don't pay attention to any of that tabloid stuff. I can't name more than a couple of people in the royal family and those who I can name. I don't have that much positive to say about. If you were to ask me if I would support Britain becoming a full republic and doing away with the monarchy, I would say decidedly no. And that is a total flip from where I started. And I'm not at all suggesting that you should follow me into a pro monarchical stance. But I found myself in that stance nonetheless. And that's in part because the costs are little. doesn't cost the British taxpayer much. The king or the queen can't say an opinion about any legislation. They are apolitical by law, and they honor the law. So there's no real cost, but there is a benefit. It's about tradition. It's about unity. It's about ceremony and pomp and circumstance. And look, I tend to be allergic to ceremony and pomp and circumstance, but particularly in the last couple of years, as we've watched the fundamental norms of various Western republics crumble, as we've watched social cohesion crumble in various Western countries, I find myself that much more... Attracted to the British monarchy. I also can't believe I'm confessing this in a recorded environment. This will probably come to haunt me, as with so many other things in my life. Okay, so again, I'm trying to get back to this question What is the government? Is it the Queen's government? Is it the Prime Minister's government? Is it a cabinet government? Is it Parliament's government? Is it the civil servants' government? Well, Let's begin to answer that question by looking through those structures of the British government in turn, beginning with the prime minister. How could we not begin with the prime minister, he asks rhetorically. The prime minister is indeed the first among equals, right? The primus into Paris. But as Churchill stated somewhat infamously, quote, there could be no comparison between the positions of number one and numbers two, three, and four right? The prime minister is the apex of authority who fulfills several functions. Let's walk through the functions that the prime minister serves. First, the prime minister is there to win elections. Second, the prime minister is there to win elections. And third, the prime minister is there to win elections, right? You got to play to win. And the most important thing a prime minister can do is to win, win, and win again, And as of about 15 years ago, we have to have an election every five years, although a prime minister can call elections anytime within that five-year period. We'll talk about that later. But the goal of the prime minister is to win, to win on behalf of his own agenda and on behalf of the party. A second function of the prime minister is to lead their party. Who should be the prime minister for any given party? The person who demonstrates the requisite leadership qualities. The person who can bring people together, the person who can forge compromises, the person who can speak with an eloquence that a broad, diverse party represents, right? But those leadership skills are sometimes very different than maybe more cut and dry skills like running the government, right? The prime minister has to make sure that the machine is running, that all pistons are firing, that your education department and your defense department and the exchequer's department, the home office and the foreign office, everything is operating smoothly, right? In order to do that, a fourth function of the prime minister is to establish and to manage and to sometimes shuffle a cabinet. The prime minister has to be very thoughtful about who they appoint to high offices. And they need those people to be loyal to the prime minister themselves. They need those people to be knowledgeable. They need those people to be decisive. And if and only if they can't make a decision, should an issue reach the level of the prime minister. You know, like Barack Obama said about the presidency of the United States, only the most difficult decisions should reach his desk. That's the hardest part of the job. All the department secretaries in the United States, all of the high-ranking ministers in the United Kingdom, They should be people of stature. They should be people with experience, preferably administrative experience. And one of the prime minister's functions is to manage them. And if they find that they're hard to manage, they should fire some, hire others, move them around, establish new agencies, cut some agencies in half, change the dossiers of certain high ranking officials. That's the job. That's a very important function that the prime minister serves. Prime ministers also have to negotiate with minority parties. And this is especially true in the somewhat rare case of coalition governments in the United Kingdom. You know, and ultimately the prime minister has to perform. They have to perform before the cameras. They have to speak to the British people. They have to speak to the world. And they have to show up in front of parliament every week for question time. And this is nerve wracking. Harold Wilson, the former prime minister, said, and I quote, If Britain ever had a prime minister that didn't fear questions, our parliamentary democracy would be in danger. And this is especially true in the YouTube age, where a prime ministerial gaffe during question time can go viral in a second. You know, and that's a nightmare for any prime minister. And a final function of the prime minister is to create and balance policies, foreign policies, domestic policies, and what we sometimes call intermestic policies. I wouldn't go so far as to say that the job of the British prime minister is the hardest job in the world. In my mind, that title belongs to the president of the United States. And if you want to know why I say that, read U.S. political guru John Dickerson's newest book, which goes to great lengths to describe why the U.S. presidency is an impossibly difficult role. And part of the reason I think that the British prime minister's job isn't as hard as a president of the United States job is because in the United States, we don't have a royal family that can do some of the ceremonial jobs. The amount of time the president of the United States has to do purely ceremonial tasks is hugely problematic. But it's also because the president of the United States oftentimes has the opposition party in control of one or both houses in the legislature. And that is not a problem that the British prime minister has, right? And it's simply the case that the prime minister is not a president. The prime minister is not directly elected by the people. The prime minister does not have term limits, which means they could have 10 or 15 or 20 years potentially to fulfill their campaign promises and their agenda, The prime minister can appoint and dismiss cabinet members relatively quickly and easily by comparison to what we see in the United States and other presidential systems. And look, the prime minister is the apex of authority. Legislation proposed by the prime minister is usually enacted. Because of high levels of party discipline, you don't have the degree of opposition that we see in other systems. The prime minister has no states to contend with. As we know, Britain is a unitary system. There's no judicial review in the UK, and there's no written constitution. So it's an exceedingly difficult job. It's not as difficult as certain presidencies are. But when push comes to shove, the prime minister of the United Kingdom has to serve a number of very difficult functions, winning elections, leading the party, running the government, establishing, managing, and sometimes shuffling a cabinet, negotiating with minority parties, showing up at a sometimes contentious House of Commons and grappling with both foreign and domestic policies. It's a tough job, and the prime minister is the apex of authority. And thus, there's reason to call the British system a prime ministerial system. But no prime minister could fulfill their functions without the cabinet. Now, the prime minister's cabinet is usually about 100 members of parliament appointed by the prime minister. And this is what Walter Badgett calls the close union, the the nearly complete fusion of the legislative and executive powers, right? About a hundred members of parliament are in the executive branch as well. That's the fusion. Now, the average minister stays for about two years. This is one of the highest rates of turnover in Europe, perhaps problematically, British cabinet members don't stick around in the same role long enough to develop expertise. They learn just enough on the job before they move on to another ministerial role. So they'll be in the education ministry for a couple years. Perhaps then they'll work in the foreign office. And there's this constant shuffling, which on one hand really keeps British ministers fresh, and it keeps them from cultivating too much power. But on the other hand, of course, expertise does matter but that's what we have lower-level civil servants for. Because of the need for party discipline in British politics, cabinet ministers used to be deemed yes-men, pardon the gendering, because they're loyal. But they can also be really ambitious, right? They're looking out for their own careers. And this is especially true in the modern era where the press corps is watching the prime minister and their cabinet with a microscope, if not a proctoscope, watching their every move, just looking for something that smells of scandal to hop on, looking for a conflict, seeking to create conflict where there's not conflict. It's especially important for cabinet members to follow the party line. There was the great show, in the 70s, and it was rebooted in the 80s or early 90s. The original one was called Yes Minister, and then the reboot was called, I think, Yes Prime Minister. It was a BBC comedy. It was utterly charming. And the thesis of the show was essentially that the cabinet really ran the government, that the cabinet members gave the prime minister the illusion of being the apex of authority when really he wasn't at all. He governed really at the behest of his cabinet. And while it was all for comedic effect, there's some truth to it. The British cabinet is strong. The prime minister relies on their cabinet to formulate and administer policy. And the cabinet's hardly made up of chumps. The cabinet, again, it's made up of members of parliament made up from people who went to very good schools made up of people who are very ambitious and they have their own ideas and they themselves often see themselves as being prime ministers in waiting so it really is a game of herding cats for the prime minister and the function of these ministers again it's to follow the party line and demonstrate party discipline the ministers initiate policy and then they direct the bureaucracy to enforce policies, the Minister of Education is responsible for everybody who works in the Department of Education below them. You know, ministers have to compete, often for scarce resources, always for the attention and the affection of the Prime Minister. You have this Education Minister, and they're competing for resources with the Foreign Office, with the Treasury Office. With the Ministry of Trade, the Ministry of Transportation, the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Media, the Ministry of Environment, or the Ministry of Housing, they're all trying to get into 10 Downing Street. They're all trying to get their agenda to be the news of the day. You know, you have the Ministry of Environmental Affairs, and you have the Ministry of Industry and Trade. If you draw a Venn diagram of the goals of the environmental and industrial ministries, You don't have that much overlap. It's a lot of competition. And so the ministers have to play to the media, play to the prime minister, play to both houses of parliament in order to get their agenda and their interests, some of which are personal, some of which are political, to be the talk of the town for that day. And that's actually an interesting difference between what we see in a presidential system, particularly the US system, and what we see in the British system or the Canadian system. In the British and Canadian systems, a lot of attention is paid to what the ministers are doing in office. In the United States, so much attention is being paid to the president. A disproportionate amount of attention is being paid to the presidency of the United States. And we could talk about how and why that came to be and the more difficult discussion is what we could do to combat that. But one thing that I've come to quite enjoy in studying British politics somewhat closely for the last 15 years or so is that you come to realize what a team effort it is. And you get to know who the ministers are and how they operate. Their importance, perhaps while secondary to the importance of the prime minister, is duly noted by the press and by the British people. And the importance of the ministers in aggregate, and the ministers' importance in aggregate is arguably even more important than that of the prime minister. And then you add to the cabinet the shadow cabinet. Now, the shadow cabinet is a senior group of opposition spokespeople, you know, the party out of power, who monitor and criticize what's going on in Whitehall, where the executive agencies are. So for the Tory minister of education under Boris Johnson, there is a shadow minister of education in the Labour Party. So for Theresa May's Chancellor of the Exchequer, there was a shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer in the Labour Party. And the job of the shadow chancellor is to scrutinize what the minister in power is doing and to learn how the job is done. And it is often, though, not always the case that the shadow minister becomes the minister when their party is in power. So the current shadow chancellor to the Exchequer, whose name is Abina Apongasere, for the Labour Party, is shadowing Boris Johnson's chancellor of the Exchequer, whose name is Kemi Badenoch. And while I could hardly name all of the important ministers in British politics, these two women are particularly interesting because both of them are women of color. One is of Ghanaian and the other of Nigerian ancestry. And because the exchequer is oftentimes a golden escalator to the prime ministership, the notion that you have two black women who are a step away from becoming British prime minister is super exciting to me and to a lot of other people. So, again, we have the British cabinet and we have a shadow cabinet composed of opposition leaders. And that battle between the cabinet and the shadow cabinet a battle that takes place in the halls of Parliament, a battle that takes place on the floor of the House of Commons, a battle that takes place in the media all day, every day, makes it reasonable to call the British government a cabinet government, as opposed to a prime ministerial government. And again, while the prime minister does direct their cabinet to some degree, the cabinet in and of itself is a substantial locus of power in British governance, is the prime minister really the apex of authority, or is the cabinet the apex of authority, and the prime minister is the public relations master for the cabinet? And the answer to that question, of course, depends on who the prime minister is. As we've seen, under Margaret Thatcher, it was definitely a prime ministerial government. Under Churchill, definitely a prime ministerial government. Under Harold Wilson, not so much. Under John Major, not so much. And it's not that Wilson, the Labor Party leader who ran government for six years, or Major, the conservative party leader who ran government for seven years, were insubstantial. It's just that they didn't rule with the same iron fist that Churchill or Thatcher famously or infamously did. So it's an interesting question, right? And I hope that you follow the question. I hope that you find some interest in the question also. And again, the easy answer is, depends who the prime minister is, but the easy answer isn't always the best answer, right? So let's put a pin in the question just for now and talk about parliament, because there's an easy argument to make that the British form of government is best described as a parliamentary style government. We have two Houses, the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Let's talk about those two in turn. Currently, the House of Commons is 650 members, and those members serve various functions, the first of which is healthy debate. And I have to say, I remain terribly charmed by the quality and the quantity of debate in British Parliament. I've had the good fortune of joining debate in the House of Commons no fewer than a half dozen times in my life, and I am duly impressed by the tone and content of debate there. So perhaps the primary function of Parliament is to debate the issues of the day. A second function is to form committees of expertise, and those experts develop policy and or scrutinize the policy of any given cabinet. Parliament functions to create legislation through compromise. And if compromise itself doesn't do it, Parliament functions to go to the well of public opinion, right? Members of Parliament go to their constituencies, they go to the media, and they explain why it is that the legislation they're advocating for would be the best thing for all Britons alike. And if they're not working on the affirmative side of a debate and or if they're not in the majority party, Parliament functions to criticize Whitehall and to criticize what's going on at 10 Downing Street and to shine a light on what they see to be the weaknesses of the prime minister or their cabinet. Now, unlike a presidential system, and in particular, unlike the U.S. presidential system, members of parliament don't usually speak for their constituencies' interests in the same uncompromising way. Look, in British politics, we have very high levels of party discipline parties tend to vote as the block. You know, almost every week, each party publishes a document called the whip. Each party has a member of parliament whose role is called the chief whip. And the job of the document is to tell people how to vote. And the chief whip is there to make sure that members of the party vote in line with what the leaders of the party demand. And it's very unique in British politics. About 90% of the votes are 100% in line with the parties. So if the Labor Party is proposing a piece of legislation that amends the function of the National Health Service, there's a 90% chance that 100% of Labor members of Parliament will vote with the party. If the Tories are proposing a transportation bill, there's a 90% chance that 100% of Tories will vote for that bill. Party discipline enforced by the whip, as stated in the weekly document called the whip. Now imagine a scenario where this transportation bill is going to create a railroad right through some beautiful field in your constituency, and you're a member of parliament, and your constituents don't want this railroad running through this beautiful field. It's alongside a playground. It's next to a school. Nobody wants a railroad running through their fields, right? Right. And you're expected to vote for that railroad regardless. And if it's clear that you're running in a tight constituency, a hotly contested constituency where half the time the the member of parliament from that constituency is a Labor Party member and half the time it's a Tory, you you might go to the whip and ask for permission to vote against it so that you could safely run for re-election. So you could say to your constituents, hey, look, I did what you asked me to do. I voted against the railroad, but it passed anyway, and I'm sorry. But you know when you re-elect me, I'll stand up for you. I walked into the office of the Whipper. I walked into the office of the Prime Minister, and I told them that this bill was no good. So vote for me again. And so that's one way it can work, right? Or you can imagine the same scenario, the same train line, the same Tory member of parliament walking into the chief whip's office and saying, I humbly ask your permission to vote against this bill. And the chief whip says, no, vote with us. It's a tight vote. But don't worry if the reelection campaign doesn't look like it's going to work out. We're going to have you run for the constituency next door where Tories get 80% of the vote all the time. So vote with us today. We'll take care of you tomorrow if things get tight in your next election. You know, and as a member of parliament, You have to make that calculation. It's not an easy one. But as a member of parliament, your loyalty to your party oftentimes supersedes your loyalty to your constituency. Not the same way in the United States. Lower degrees of party loyalty, higher degrees of loyalty to one's constituency. You know, for better or for worse. You know, in British politics, it's not exactly expected that you're from the constituency that you represent. In American politics, party loyalty doesn't reign supreme. And look, again, in this same instance, there's a calculation to be made. Standing up against this train line, going to the media, writing an op-ed in your local newspaper, maybe getting it syndicated in the larger newspaper, could help you to cement your reputation as a member of parliament, to show that you're really loyal to your people. And that could advance your career. <laughs> it might not advance your career as a Tory politician, but maybe it will, maybe it won't. Sometimes it's a matter of principle. Sometimes you vote against a war, even if your party and your constituents are for it. Principle matters, party loyalty matters. And hopefully those two values don't clash with too much frequency. That would make the job of the parliamentarian that much more difficult. Okay, so that's the House of Commons. Again, 650 members. You have the whip distributed every week. You have the chief whip. You have high degrees of party loyalty. You have a lot of debate, creating legislation, compromising on legislation, going to the wells of public opinion, going to the media, and you speak for your constituents where it's appropriate. I should also mention when we're talking about Parliament that 20 days a year, the opposition gets to lead the floor. So the opposition gets to choose the debate topics and lead the debate. And again, as mentioned previously, once a week, the prime minister has to show up in the House of Commons to take questions from the opposition party. If you will grant me the indulgence of letting me wear my heart on my sleeve and sharing my bias for just a hot minute here. I firmly believe that despite its faults, flaws, shortcomings, and defects, the British House of Commons is one of the greatest illustrations of democracy in the modern world. But even more impressive to me is the House of Lords. The House of Lords is comprised of 788 members, 682 of whom are life peers, 92 are hereditary peers, And the Lords functions to initiate legislation, except for any financial legislation, which the Brits call money bills. Importantly, the House of Lords can delay legislation for up to a year, uh, but financial legislation, they can only delay for up to a month. So the House of Lords slows things down. Remember, British politics moves really quickly. It's the nature of parliamentary systems, right? The head of the executive branch and the legislative branch are of the same party. So bills get passed. Things move quickly in the House of Commons. The House of Lords can slow things down for up to a year. Members of the House of Lords are proud to serve as a second set of eyes. And that second set of eyes has cultivated expertise. The House of Lords is so impressive to me because the members of the House of Lords themselves are so impressive members of the House of Lords have earned their titles that have been bestowed upon them for their great achievements. And so they're able to debate the controversial issues of the day, issues about LGBTQ plus rights, issues about environmental affairs, issues about the death penalty or other matters of justice, through their expertise and as a somewhat apolitical body. And again, when I came to teaching this class, when I moved to Barcelona in 2005, I was aghast by the notion that there was a legislative body called the House of Lords. I mean, come on. In the same way, I was aghast that there was a monarchy. You know, the playwright Tom Stoppard once said something like, the cure for anybody who admires the House of Lords is to go watch them in action. I'm paraphrasing but it was something like that. And I've had the pleasure to go watch the House of Lords debate. I've been very lucky. A dear friend of mine connected me to a friend of his who happens to be the right Honorable Viscount Younger of Lecky, And Lord Younger, James as he insists I call him, who was the majority party whip under Theresa May and under Boris Johnson, was kind enough year after year to bring my students and I into his private office, and into the House of Lords, where we watched the debates. Six years in a row, and I have never in my life been so impressed by legislative debate. These are distinguished Brits with impeccable resumes, outstanding achievements, deeply committed to public service, many of them working without salary, You have some of the best engineers in the country debating transportation legislation. You have some of the best doctors and hospital administrators debating bills that will fundamentally change the National Health Service. And one of my first visits to the House of Lords was to watch the House of Lords debate the reform of the House of Lords. And there was real discussion about abolishing the House of Lords. And to be there for this existential debate... And to watch and to listen to this honest and earnest discussion about the future of that distinguished chamber totally changed my mind. And I'm a convert to the existence of the House of Lords, much more so than I am a convert to the existence of the monarchy. And in a future talk, which I hope to record in this podcast, I'll dive deeper into Lord's reform. But suffice it to say for now, the overwhelming majority of Brits want a second chamber. The question is, how democratic should it be? How big should it be? And what functions should it serve? For the functions of the House of Lords are changing, my friends. There used to be the law lords, and the law lords were extinguished over a decade ago with the 2005 Constitutional Reform Act. The Lords have no veto power. Again, all they can do is delay legislation up to a year, financial legislation for up to a month. But I, for one, hope that in some way, shape, and form, this august Second Chamber manages to not just survive, but to thrive. And again, I hope to talk about that more later. So we have this bicameral legislature, the House of Commons, the House of Lords. Together, they comprise Parliament. And then there is a very strong argument that the British form of governance is best described as a parliamentary system, not a cabinet system, not a prime ministerial system, but a parliamentary system where the apex of authority is in Parliament. Now, before we drive this train into the station here, I would be remiss if I didn't take just a moment to talk a bit about the British judiciary. The judicial system in Britain has increased its function over the last 15 or 20 years, just as the House of Lords has deferred its power to the British judiciary. The British judiciary is of some mystery and intrigue, particularly to the American ear, because rather uniquely, the Brits don't have a written constitution and there is no Bill of Rights. And on the fringes of British politics, there have been some interesting discussions about what a British constitution might look like. But in the past 20 years or so, between the challenges of devolution, the financial crisis, the Scottish independence referendum, and then Brexit, questions about a written constitution are very much on the back burner but I surely wouldn't want to leave you with the impression that the British government somehow lacks laws or rule of law. There is a well-established and very well-understood common law system in the United Kingdom, and that common law system was augmented by Tony Blair's adoption of the European Convention of Human Rights. So with that, is there a Bill of Rights needed? And then in 2005 the Labour government passed the Constitutional Reform Act, which established the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. And while this Supreme Court doesn't have the power of judicial review, the Judicial Committee on the Privy Council can resolve disputes about the interpretation of an act of Parliament. And I'm reminded that when Boris Johnson sought to prorogate Parliament a couple years back, the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom flexed its muscle and determined that prorogation effort to be illegal. So the role of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom is evolving. It has some sovereignty on matters of devolution. But ultimately, if the courts rule against the government, that court ruling could be annulled by Parliament itself. So for those of us interested in rule of law, it's going to be interesting to watch how the judiciary evolves in the United Kingdom over the next 10 or 20 years, now that the law lords don't have prerogative over judicial functions in the UK, and now that we have a Supreme Court that seems to slowly but surely be willing to take on the political conundrum of the day. You know, if you're teaching or taking this AP Comparative Government course, you know that the United Kingdom stands as the one highly functioning democracy that we study in this class. British politics is unique, and it's uniquely interesting and fun to watch. And there are those who argue that the British form of government, whether it's best described as a cabinet government, a prime minister's government, or a parliamentary style government, is the model form of governance. You know, the distinguished political scientist Richard Rose once said, quote, In the study of comparative politics, England is important as a deviant case, deviant because of its success in coping with the many political problems of the modern world. Just as Alexis de Tocqueville traveled to America in 1831 to seek the secrets of democracy, so today one might travel to England in search of the secrets stable representative government. I say we should take Richard Rose with more than just a couple grains of salt, for a couple reasons. First, so much of the stability in British governance is a manifestation of the wealth that Britain accumulated at the expense of oh-so-many people around the world during the imperial era. Second, after that imperial era so many post-colonial countries sought to model their system after the british one and so many of those efforts failed rather magnificently and third if you've been watching british politics in the last couple of years it doesn't seem so stable the scottish independence referendum was close and the second independence referendum seems like it might be around the corner If Brexit wasn't totally catastrophic, it certainly isn't illustrative of the essence of stability, as Richard Rose would have us believe. Not only is Brexit going to likely trigger another Scottish referendum, it's likely to trigger troubles in Northern Ireland as well. But I hear what Richard Rose is saying. I'm just taking him to task 50 years after he said what he said. Because the nature of British government... And the structures and functions of British governance haven't changed so much since 1964 when he wrote that. But the stability of the United Kingdom has certainly changed. You know, back in ancient Greece, Aristotle sent his students out to perform comparative analyses of different ancient Greek city-states and to determine the best possible form of government, the ideal form of government. And I would challenge you, My Aristotelian proteges, to carefully consider what you would have to say about contemporary Britain. To what degree and in what ways is the British system indeed the model? And it is with that question that I will wish you health and wellness. I hope this talk worked for you. If you're not one of my students and you want to throw a couple bucks into the kitty, head over to buymeacoffee.com, help keep the CoGo pod going strong. I look forward to talking at you soon. Bye!